Surprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. We got two fantastic coaches and athletes in this show. So the point of today's episode was basically what do ultra runners know that road marathon runners should know or should learn, right? What are some of the things that these folks can instill in us, the road marathoners? Uh, and that's, I thought was an interesting topic. And I couldn't think of two better people to talk to. We got Megan, Dr. Megan Roche uh, of Some Work, All Play, where she is a, basically her and her husband, David Roche, uh, work with a number of athletes. Also, she is a doctor. She is just a phenomenal athlete as well. One of the best ultra runners, uh, one of those trail and ultra runners, I should say. I keep, I keep mixing that up. Not mixing up, but I don't, I don't include it. One of the best trail and ultra runners for a number of years in the United States. And she is just a phenomenal athlete, also a former Division I field hockey player. So she she just brings it 100%. And Jacob Pusey, who is just like Megan, a very, very good runner and someone who has spent a lot of time doing marathons. This is a guy, and as he talks about in this episode, so he uh, is not simply a trail and ultra runner. He certainly does that. He, he absolutely loves it, but he's also done road marathons as well. So they both just bring so much knowledge to the table, and I could not wait to have this conversation. So let's get into it with Jacob and Megan. Jacob Husey and Megan Roche, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Matt. Just pumped to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject that um, I think maybe a lot of people don't discuss, but I think that there's a lot of value in for so many runners like me who don't spend a lot of time either on the trails and or ultra running and specifically ultra running in this case. And that is what can marathoners, specifically road marathoners, learn from people in the ultra running community? So maybe some things that are standard practice for ultra runners and that they know and use and maybe we don't, or maybe some things that we do that maybe don't serve us as well as um, some other best practices, or maybe not even best practices, maybe just things that um, experts like yourselves know really well. So we have a couple topics that we're going to do um, today, so let's just get right into it. Megan, I'm going to start with you since you boned up, you researched, you're ready to roll. Let's talk about a subject that I know is not necessarily something that can affect everybody. It's kind of dependent on where you live. But for those of us who do have a choice of where we can run, let's talk about running on pavement versus running on trail and trail being a very vague term for basically anything that's not on pavement or a track uh, and how we should, as roadrunners, think about this subject maybe for the first time or really dive into it um, in a more intentional manner. Absolutely. So I love this topic. I came from the road and the the trail or the road and the track to trails. And I loved making that transition. I just felt like there was this like wide variety of freedom on the trails. And it felt like I was just out there like rocking and rolling over rocks and really feeling that groove. But I think in order to talk about this, I think it'd be best to break it down in terms of musculoskeletal development, um, aerobic stress, neuromuscular development, and then the biomechanical aspects of it. Um, So I'll just start first with the musculoskeletal. The amazing part about running on the trails is that you do have these varied movement patterns. um, And I think that's where a lot of the injury risk reduction comes in. So for me, I was kind of an injury prone 
marathon runner on the track and on the roads. And on the trails, I just felt like because of this varied movement pattern stimulus, I was getting injured a lot less. And that was a big perk of it. Um, interestingly, there's some new studies that come out actually that show that injury risk does not reduce from running on soft surfaces. So I think a lot of the injury reduction that I'm seeing as a coach is from those varied movement patterns. Um, and then also a lot of benefit to be had too in terms of the uphills and downhills in trail running. Um, the eccentric contractions that come from that, I think, translate over well to the roads um, and then also are fantastic for the trails as well. That's interesting about hearing the the study that says running on softer surfaces might not necessarily um, provide less of a, uh, an injury risk. I would just assume the opposite, but I guess it kind of may, might dovetail into just how shoes can play a part in that. It's just things that are under feet. Jacob, when, when we first you know, brought this topic up over email. What were some of the things that you you wanted to bring to the table? You know, I, I think many of the uh, the points that Megan made are are certainly things that we want to uh, probably even dig deeper into. But um, I, I also thought in terms of duration of long runs and fueling long runs and or the marathon. Um, not always, but often marathoners kind of approach. Especially if they're they're trying to run fast, you know they're they're thinking in terms of minimalism and and even like being misers, like how how little can I take in during this race? How little can I wear? How little like you know just how how light can my shoes be? How short can my shorts be? You know whatever it might be to to like to maximize their gains. And um, I think sometimes just the laid back nature of ultras and being out there for a little bit longer and learning how to fuel with maybe something other than just an electrolyte drink, um, or going two hours with nothing like, um, like it actually, it, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I made, I actually improved as a road marathoner when I started running ultras because like my, it was a paradigm shift. Like I, um, I started doing longer long runs and I started, um, rather than training like a 10 K runner and then having a few long runs throwing and thinking, Oh, I'm ready for a marathon. Like, so, so my body, like my durability increased a little bit, not by making every run, like a three hour long run, but by having a few long runs that were like longer than two hours. Um, and then also practicing the fueling in preparation rather than <laughs> just getting to race day and then, um, hitting mile 18 or 22 or something and being like, Oh, Huh, I probably should have eaten sometime between now and be, between the start and now. And so I think, yeah, some of it is just practicing. And, and yeah, like I said, the, the ultra and trail scene is generally a little bit more laid back and the training runs are usually a little bit more laid back. And so you, you can take the time to just like not be in a hurry and, and kind of learn how to read your body and practice things rather than just constantly fixating on what your pace is because you're running on the exact same surface on the exact same route that you've done every single day. And Strava tells you whether you're going faster or slower on, on that particular day. So, so there are a lot of different things that I, I think we can benefit from as marathoners uh, or trail runners and vice versa. Yeah. And when you went from the road to the trails, Jacob, and, and you started uh, incorporating that more into your running, where is it more of like, can you describe the kind of trails that you were, you know, gravitating towards um, predominantly in that? Was it the more buffed out trails, dirt roads, or was it, you know, the more technical variety, whether even if it was flat, just, you know, the rocks and roots and really having to, um, you know, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball type scenario. Yeah. Well, so a couple things. I was limited by geography. I, I, I was in the Pacific Northwest when I made that transition. Um, eh, I guess I was a 
a, a college student, I guess it's the first time, um, that I ran a marathon, the first two marathons I ran, I was still like trying to run cross country and track in college, but I just jumped in marathons at the end of the season and I did run on dirt roads and things like that. But, uh, that was either on the North shore of Oahu or, uh, then in, in rural Oregon where I, I returned to my roots. So it was a lot of farm roads. Um, it wasn't a lot of technical single track. Um, and I, and I, I love dirt roads, just canal roads that go on for days. And, and so it's a very irrigated part where I grew up in, in Northeastern Oregon. And so there were a lot of canal roads to run on. So, so that was my, those were my, my trails, uh, that I trained on. Um, it was actually like my first two marathons that I ran, I, I, I did exactly what I mentioned before. Like I, I didn't even realize you were supposed to fuel. I didn't like, I, I, like I said, I was training like a, like a collegiate cross country runner and then just <laughs> jumped into a marathon at the end of the season, hoping that my long runs were long enough. And so fueling was terrible. I didn't know you were supposed to wear socks, uh, because I never wore socks when I ran cross country. And so I mean, I, I, yeah, like I was just bleeding all over the place out of my shoes and like bonking really hard. Um, even though I felt really fit. So I, uh, I actually heard a podcast with, uh, Greg McMillan. And Brett Gocher at the time, and Brett Gocher had just set run a fast debut marathon, and they talked about doing three hour long runs or or runs that exceeded like even the marathon distance. And I was like, huh, I think that's the problem. Like I, I think I I I don't ever go further than twenty miles or further than two hours on my long runs leading up to this marathon, and I'm trying to run fast marathon, but I'm I don't even know what that feels like uh, except for on race day, and then all of a sudden my my body just starts freaking out, and so. Um, I tried to do that a few times in training and, and I, this was before handhelds and this was before packs, or at least I wasn't aware of this kind of, the technology was a lot different. This You're was, going the full Anton Kropitschka. Uh, I, 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 I tried to do it, but I was like placing bottles out there. Um, and I actually was doing a really long run once and I, um, I saw a guy on a bike with my water bottle. It was a long run in not really long, but it was really hot. It was probably over hundred degrees and it was hot. And I saw a guy on a bike with my water bottle riding toward me when I was like waiting to get it, it the, like to turn around. I was just like, you have got to be kidding me. So I, I drank out of a horse trough. Um, cause I didn't have any other place to get water. Um, oh my God. So Jordan, I was just like, damned. yeah, just like moving the algae aside and just like, <gasps> and, and, but there were no calories or anything like that. So I, cause you know, all I had were like tiny little short shorts that didn't have any pockets or anything. So I was, trying to figure out how to do what I read, what I heard about in the podcast and, and what I was reading about, um, as I was trying to get more into the marathon. And, and then I signed up for my first 50 K, uh, it was called the Hag Lake 50 K. And that was, that was meant to be like a supported long run. <laughs> so that someone did, wasn't stealing my gels and my, and my water bottles. And, um, and I ran that and, and just kind of fell head over heels in love with trail and ultra running. Um, but I also like, that was part of the buildup for, what ended up being a breakthrough marathon for me. And, um, so it wasn't like I did that every weekend, but I, that was strategically in there like eight weeks out from my goal race and, um, and it worked out. So, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if the, the, the chasing down stolen water bottles fartlek is somewhat related to running away from, um, unleashed dogs fartlek. Yeah. As, I, as obviously as, as, which is very different from dogs running at large fartlek. 
That's which, which I know, which I know, Andy Dog is very familiar with. We are one hundred percent true. Yeah, we follow that training that training strategy to a T over here. Um, but Jacob, I actually echo that horse trough uh, predicament. So I can attest that in the Bay Area, I have drinking out of a number of horse troughs. Uh, Windy Hill, Black Mountain, for any Bay Area listeners, and I was fine afterwards. So I can attest they they are at least okay. Granted, I've had some health issues recently, so who knows? Maybe I should have brought that up to the doctors. Hey, I drank out of horse troughs. Uh, maybe it impacts your heart. I don't think so. But um, I, I totally echo the sentiment too about fueling. So um, I coach a lot of athletes who are coming off the track and the idea of even taking one gel in a half marathon or three gels in a marathon is something that is mind boggling to them. And I think the great part about trail running is if you're running for three, four or five hours, you are going to have to be consuming by nature of it, a large quantity of food. And I think there's something about adapting the stomach to that and adapting to the mind to that, that makes it a lot easier than to go to the marathon distance on the roads and say, Hey, I only have to take three, four or five gels during this. It doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have to eat potato chips and all of these different things that you're consuming during ultras. So I, I love that you brought up that point and that sentiment, because I think even more so these days, we're just seeing the benefits of fueling adequately. I know I watched, um, I watched actually the mountain bike short track championships and that race is less than an hour. And about four minutes before the final sprint, you see the, the winner, the ultimate winner going and taking an energy gel, which just emphasizes the power of fuel across all races. And I think that's something that we're even just diving into more research on. This is such a great point. It's, it's, this is great. Another great example of what runners can learn or road runners can learn from people in, doing, you know, either related sports or completely different sports. Like you would never hear someone who was like competing in the Tour de France being like, I had four gels during the race. Be like, what? Like, you're not even going to finish halfway through that stage if you did something like that. You know what I mean? And there's plenty. So, so many other endurance sports you could take that as an example of even shoot, even today, Camille Heron posted about how like she had like a second breakfast, which was basically like, you know, a sugar surprise, <laughs> like the sugar surprise buffet of, of, of various things. Um, it kind of reminded me of like the breakfast from Elf, um, if you've seen that movie. So, and it's like this, you know, eating training is ultra training kind of feel. This is the same variety of like, hey, this is part of the deal. And if you're going to get ready to do an ultra race, there's any kind of really long endurance effort. Like you need to make sure that you prepare your gut and even the the book Iron War that Matt Fitzgerald wrote about Dave Scott and Mark Allen, which is still if pe people who love this episode, love this podcast know that I talk about this book constantly, um, talks about how like there's many a short course triathlon specialist who hasn't been able to succeed at the Ironman at the Ironman because of just GI issues that can come with you know eating for 12 hours during exercise and being able to handle that oftentimes can be just as debilitating as not being quite as fit as you'd want to be. A hundred percent. And I think the other thing too, is it's not just energy consumption during exercise, but I think on a whole too, our athletes are really starting to think about the values of energy consumption after exercise and before exercise. And really newer studies are coming out showing that overtraining might actually be heavily connected to low carbohydrate intake, low fuel intake, not fueling the body enough and something that we call relative energy deficiency in sport. So I feel like this, this conversation on fuel is also extending to outside of running too. And like, what are you doing as soon as you finish a run? What, what are, what's the type of fuel and the quality of fuel that you're putting into your body? And I think ultra running and short running makes that a little bit more tangible because when you go run for three hours in the mountains, it seems so obvious, but sometimes I think when you're doing shorter runs, it doesn't seem so obvious yet. It's so important. And I think that's, where there's also a lot of good crossover between these sports as well. Yeah, you and David, your husband who coaches with you for Some Work All Play, had a great episode on that topic. I think it was like, um, what was it? Or like November 18th or so. Um, you guys talked about this. It was basically it's like, 
two sides of the same coin under fueling versus overtraining. It was just, it's it's almost, or can be at various points and at many points, just the same issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you know the date of that. I have no idea what date. I listened listened to it on the way back from the Richmond half marathon. It's like I was driving for 13 hours. So it was like one of the 18 podcasts I listened to on the way back. That's how I have some idea of when it was published. I am so, I'm so honored. That's awesome. Uh, I, I'd like to say thank you to both Megan and David for uh, all of the resources that you uh, have been creating, whether it be your podcast or book or, or articles that you write. Um, you, you have plenty of firsthand experience with the fact that you do the, the legwork to do the research and then make it palatable for the lay people out here. Um, I often share your articles and episodes with, with my athletes for the same for the same reasons, because you say it better than I could. And so, you know, why, why try and reinvent the wheel? So you, you, thank you. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. That It truly means a ton. But I, I owe a lot of credit, actually, to David, my co-author, on a lot of these um, podcasts and a lot of these writing pieces for Trailrunner, because I feel like I do a lot of like scientific writing and scientific publications. And if I could bring his jokes into these publications, it would make my life a lot more fun as a researcher and hopefully like spread the research. Um, so it's kind of fun to have that approach of, of I do a lot of research. And sometimes I find these articles just disappear into journals um, and disappear out into the ether. And it's, it's fun to get to bring some jokes to them to make them fun and hopefully palatable. So thank you so much for that comment. It means a lot. All right, diving into the next topic, and these are all these are like the Olympic rings. They're kind of overlapping topics in a way. So some of these seg- some of these segues might work a little better than others. This one hopefully will work out pretty well. Is when we talk about kind of lengths of long runs and or weekend doubles and way of kind of accumulating. Um, aerobic fitness and just tolerance to long runs that can help us on marathon day. Um, and this is, we'll just kind of, kind of go into this topic still on the, you know, running on roads versus running on um, softer surfaces, whether it's trails or dirt roads or um, towpaths or what have you. Um, Jacob, when you, when you think about this topic of these long runs, these extended efforts, when you're talking to some of your athletes who have a choice, whether to run on the roads or to run on softer surfaces, and, and especially those who may not be training for a specific trail race, what are some of the, the pro, either protocols or suggestions that you give or you provide in terms of how long they should be out on the roads versus maybe being out on the trails and if, that, if there's any differences there? As a general rule of thumb, I, I try and just recommend that people – run by duration or by time rather than than distance most of the time when i do write marathon specific plans there are a few key workouts and long runs that i do by distance but a lot of times it's it's by by time uh and part of that is just because of the metabolism piece um but also something that megan touched on earlier i i I do think it's important to to still train on the specific surface that you're going to race on and for the neuromuscular, like for the turnover and things like that. And also just, um, you know, I, I had a number of athletes, not just my athletes, but I, I heard from a lot of people that race Boston after not racing for two years. And it was like, wow, those Hills hurt a lot more than they did, you know, two years ago. And, and I think part of it is because people haven't been racing regularly enough on roads or periods to like, to have that that feeling of, you know, the pounding. Uh, and, and I, um, I know I felt that before coming back from injury and things like that, where it's like, I didn't get a chance to train enough on the road. And then man, even a half marathon just like felt like I got hit by a train. So I do think there, there does need to be 
a combination of the two. Uh, I, I, I generally recommend that whether it's a long run or, um, or something else, like if possible, I would say do your recovery runs or your, just your aerobic base runs on dirt if possible. Um, I still think, again, if you're training for a marathon, I still think running on something that's runnable, like buffed out trails or dirt road, you know, occasionally it can be single track and stuff like that. But if, if you're hiking and you know, that that's not, that doesn't transfer quite as much as, as a, as just a run on a dirt road. Um, but I, I really also like cut down runs, uh, whether it be on a long run or, or as a workout of sorts. Um, so if people are running on a, on a buffed out trail or on a bike path or something like that, I, um, I think, you know, finishing fast on a surface that's, that's safe, whether it's during the winter, like right now when things might be icy or something like that, like even if it's getting on the treadmill, like to get a little bit of turnover going at the end of a, of a run or something like that. Um, but I, I rarely break it down in terms of like this portion needs to be on dirt and this portion needs to be on road. Um, unless, unless there is a specific, like, it, unless someone's particularly injury prone or we're, we're really worried about, you know, trying to vary things. Um, I usually just kind of leave it up to the athletes. And it, like I said, with those general principles of like, if it's a recovery run or if it's like just an aerobic long run, dirt is totally fine. But if you're trying to hit paces and things like that, you should probably try and like actually get onto pavement or something close to pavement. So. I 100% agree, Jacob. I'm over here taking notes as I'm listening to your coaching philosophy. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. I coach a little bit differently in terms of, and I think there's no right way to do this. I think it also just heavily depends on an athlete's circumstances and what they thrive off of. I generally coach by miles on long runs. I just feel like we race in terms of distance. And so for me, it feels a little bit more tangible to, to coach and plan in terms of distance. But that being said, if I give an athlete 18 miles and then all of a sudden they're doing 18 miles with, I don't know, 15,000 feet of vert, I might have it. I might have interjection or, or same goes for road training. And so it's really heavily athlete dependent, but my brain just to, likes to work in, in those miles. And so it's something that's been beneficial for me. I think one big difference for me in terms of road training, marathon training and trail running is oftentimes for trail running and ultra racing, I'll give back to back long runs. Um, so I might give for an athlete who's racing a 50 mile, for example, I might do a 22 mile long run and a 16 mile long run because in trail running, the eccentric muscle contractions and preparing the legs for those uphills, um, and the downhill stimuli, uh, more concentric contractions on uphills and then eccentric contractions on the downhills. Um, that's something that becomes much more important in terms of the overall back to back stimulus, a little bit less of a, I mean, eccentric muscle contractions and, and muscle breakdown are still important factor in road marathoning, but less so. And to avoid injury risk and to really focus on that neuromuscular and biomechanical development, I generally don't give back-to-back -back long runs and just focus on one key long run for athletes doing road marathon racing. And so that's kind of where a big a big part of where my coaching diverges for those two groups. And do you, uh, Megan, when, you, when you're talking about miles, um, I know this is just like you mentioned, this is all individualistic when it comes into practice, but generally speaking, do you, do you like to cap it um, at certain levels, um, for certain, you know, for certain, as people are preparing for certain kinds of races. I do. So I have a general philosophy that I don't like athletes going over 50 K, um, in terms of training runs. Oftentimes if an athlete is preparing for a 100 mile race, I'll ask them to do maybe a 50 mile training race. But I think in terms of training run distance runs over 50 K just to me, don't have a big, 
I think at that point, you're training variables that actually just don't matter. Like we as humans just can't prepare for mile 60 of a 100 mile race. Like you, you can, you can prepare yourself mentally and physically as best you can, but trying to train that in, in like specific training stimulus just isn't going to work. It's going to make athletes slower. So generally I cap at 50 K often for athletes, um, training for like a 50 mile race, I'll cap at 26 miles, um, 24 miles in a long run, but then really focus on the back to back. So for a 50 mile, like I said, maybe a 24, 20 back to back. And I feel like that has a lot more benefit than having an athlete do 35 miles on a training run. Plus mentally, someone told me to go out and run 35 miles solo. I love running. I don't know how I would feel about that. I'm like, that's a long ways, like trying to think logistically about getting out there for like 35, 40 miles on a training run. You know, absolutely. That, that brings up, that's a great point. Um, and when you're not, and this is back to Megan. So if you're tra- helping train someone for whether it's a marathon or a 50K, I'm assuming that those training protocols are probably going to be somewhat similar, uh, especially if they're both kind of similar in terms of elevation gain for race day. What is your take on, you know, the long run and then just knowing what I know about swap, um, kind of like the day after long run, um, easy run or whether, how do you, how you mix that in with the rest day and just what, what some of that back-to-back stimulus may look like, even if it isn't say a double long run. Yeah, absolutely. So for a road marathon, I, my classic longest long run for a road marathon is 22 miles. I'll often work in a good percentage of um, marathon-specific work and sometimes have athletes cut down to half marathon or even inject. I love doing some marathon-specific work and then injecting some 10K surges. I think it's really fun to get the legs turning over a little faster after doing marathon-specific work. For the 50K in, in specific, oftentimes what a, a key training weekend would look like for that would be a 22-mile long run on trails with a little bit of time so like maybe an hour at 50K effort, so working in some tempo. And then the next day, super easy time on trails, like 14 miles, doing some hiking, really just working that low-level aerobic system and really working the biomechanical stress to prepare the body for those eccentric muscle contractions. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where the, the two philosophies go in terms of both groups. Interesting. All right. So Jacob, when you're working with athletes, maybe who um, are maybe marathons who are going to be finished at like four and a half hours or maybe even a little slower than that. Um, and I don't know how many of those athletes that you work with, but say you're working with athletes like that and they're trying to prepare for a marathon or an effort like that. What are some of the the long run lengths that you would start to cap at or trying to get them? Obviously, you want them prepared for race day, but you don't want them necessarily completely broken down and not being able to step to the starting line. And especially considering that, hey, a race, a, a practice, you know, whether it's 20 miles, 18 miles would just be a longer effort from a minute's perspective than it would be for maybe some athletes who are running, you know, potentially an hour or two faster for the same distance. Um, it, that's, that's why I, I kind of alternate between timed runs and measured runs by distance. Um, and, um, so like I said, usually if it's a, just an aerobic development run or like it's, it's something that could be run on trails and it's just get your timing on the feet, whether that's for ultras or, or, or marathons, uh, I usually cap it about three hours and, um, and that's, it's not like every weekend is a three hour run. It's like maybe maybe two or three times, maybe once in the buildup, depending on who the person is and how much time we have between, you know, where we're starting and where we're getting. Um, so I, I think three hours is, is a pretty good max in terms of like, you, you kind of reach that point of diminishing returns, um, after three hours, if you spend too much time, um, regardless of what you're training for. I, I think even for, for culture running, I've 
it's very rare that I ever exceed three hours in a long run for my own training, unless it's an actual race um, or like a brand, like a very odd adventure that I'm going to spend like, but it's like maybe once or twice in the buildup for like, even like a, a 50 miler or hundred K or hundred miler. So I, I don't think it's necessary to, to exceed three hours for a long run in most cases, road or trail, uh, ultra or marathon. Uh, that being said, same thing. I, I do think a 22 miler is, is usually a good, um, a good way. Um, and I was going to mention this for two reasons there's a guy named Pete Fitzinger. Um, and he actually, he's a, an exercise physiologist. He's written a couple books, advanced marathoning and, um, and he, he beat Alberto Salazar in the 1984, um, Olympic trials, um, marathon. So he's, he's, a, he's a good runner, but he also knows his, his science. And, um, and so he recommends a 22 mile predictor run at, um, or 35 K if you're working in kilometers. Um, but if you're running that at basically, you know, an aerobic effort, uh, or probably five out of 10 on the RP scale, you should be able to run that at about the same time as you would run your, your marathon. If so, I liked doing that as a predictor run similar to like Yasso 800s, but, uh, for people like me that like hate going anaerobic and like it destroys them, Yasso 800s are like the most demoralizing thing on the planet. Whereas something like this is like, this is my jam. Like I can do this all day. Um, and so I, I definitely like to do the, the Fitzinger. I think it's a good confidence builder and it, it, it really is a good indicator of, of, aerobic fitness at least. Um, and, um, yeah, in addition to that, I, I, like Megan said, I like to do other runs that might be, it might approach that distance. Um, but with some, some surges at marathon or half marathon or 10 K effort built in some squires, long runs. Um, Bill Squires was, um, the coach of the Boston track club and coached, um, Dick Beardsley and Bill Rogers and, and Alberto Salazar and, um, and he, he liked throwing in surges, like basically having long runs with fartlicks because that's kind of what racing feels like. So, um, so I, I usually alternate, uh, in my marathon plans, like one week is a, just an aerobic run. That's the great, that's a really good one to go do on trails and just get your timing on the feet. And then the other, the other week would be something with a little bit more intensity that at least some of it should be on buffed out road or trail or, or like a bike path or road. Megan, one thing that all trail runners know is the difference, basically like judging your, you know, judging your performance of how things are going by effort, right? Really dialing in how your body feels, whether it's how your legs feel, how, you know, your, your breath is going or just general, just general fatigue or the other spectrum, just general awesomeness about how your body is feeling in certain moments. Um, whereas oftentimes road runners can be much more um, outside centric. They're, they're looking at their watch. Maybe they're in a run group and they're really focused on how things are going. So what is some of the um, coaching tips and strategies you use with your runners to make sure, or not even to make sure, like how, how do you get, how do you approach this topic of judging performance of how it's going in training on someone's their effort and how they're feeling in the moment and really trying to engage with that as opposed to, you know, looking at pace and times and really trying to, to dial in those more numbers centric versions of events. 
Yeah, this is a fantastic question. I'll start with the trail side of it, um, partially because I'm a trail runner, so I'm a little bit biased. But um, on trail runs, I generally give um, efforts by RPE. So I tell athletes, and oftentimes I actually don't even give it on a scale of one to 10, or there's tons of RPE scales that you can follow. I generally just give it in terms of easy, easy mod, moderate, hard. Um, And athletes generally get a feel for what that means for themselves over time. The thing about trail running is pace is pretty, uh, you can pretty much throw it out the window. I did a workout um, a couple months ago, and one of my best workouts to date it was on a sky running course here in Boulder and I ran a 1730 mile in the context of that and it equated to something like a 520 gap but that just goes to show how like a 1730 mile is something that's like fantastic on that course and so mile splits really in trail running just like quite frankly don't matter I'll just dive in right here for people who don't know gap was a reference to Strava's grade adjusted pace which is really useful especially for people who are running up elevation gains all right keep going yes thank you for that I I I tend to speak in gap without without a Defining it. So thank you so much for that. Um, so that's something that's really helpful. I would say this though. So I'm the type of athlete that you tell me to run moderate and I will run hard. You tell me to run hard and I will run very hard to the point that I'm like spewing out all kinds of like internal biles and that's not great. So for athletes like that, I often give heart rate approaches as well. So I'm the I'm a type of athlete that like I like giving, I like when I have my training to have it be done a little bit in heart rate as well. And athletes, once they start to learn their heart rates, can start to calibrate their RPE a little bit better. So that's generally how I go for the trails. For the roads, it's pretty different. Um, I think there's a nice part for athletes. A lot of athletes who are racing road marathons come from a background of track or um, like heavy intense racing on the roads. And there's a lot of like judgment and anxiety involved when looking at the watch. And so what I like to do for those athletes is avoid specific pace recommendations for the first part of the training block, and then really start to dial in and focus on pacing, um, I would say in the last six, eight, 10 weeks of a training block. Um, That way there's not this like intense, heavy focus on pace throughout, but certainly in road marathon training in in road training, track training paces matter a lot more. Um, A difference between, you know, five seconds different on difference on a three minute rep makes a big difference. Whereas in trail running, it doesn't matter quite as much. Um, And so that's one of the, the nuances there. And so, I'll generally start giving pretty heavy pace recommendations six, eight weeks, 10 weeks out from a key race. All right. Let me, let me follow up real quick uh, right here. So when you're talk- when you're working with an athlete who's fairly new either to swap or to you specifically um, and, so, and you write in their program, especially if they're like maybe like a experienced college runner or something like that. And you're like, hey, six by three minutes hard. And you probably can probably guess the next question. It's like, oh, yeah, well, what the heck does that mean? Right. So how do you how do you frame that for them? I get a lot of pushback at first. Um, Usually athletes are like, I want I want a pace definition. I want a heart rate definition. And usually my response to that is like, trust me, like this is I tell them this is for two, three weeks. This is going to feel mind boggling weird. Like you're not going to like me for two or three weeks. And almost every athlete, I wouldn't say every athlete, but I would say like 95 percent of athletes have come to love that system over time. The key element is it just takes time. And the more that I can freeze that as normal and the more that we can like have that conversation together the better. And certainly there are, especially athletes that have like, this is my 5k PR, this is my 10k PR. We can talk a little bit about pacing. We can talk about heart rate and that's a, that's a equation in it. But I really stick to the same system, even for athletes that push back against it. And generally they come to enjoy it over time. How about you, Jacob? I know that you, you mentioned before that you're more time focused, not mile focused. So when you're talking about pacing, how does that play a part in that? Uh, I'm very similar. I, I do try and either use a an RP scale or we use a, a color continuum for the same reason. And, and the, every watch and every app has a different color 
scheme or whatever, when I design my training plans, I, I use my color continuum um, based on basically based on how much oxygen they're getting. Um, so, so, and, or there, there's, there's cis, at least in my mind, like the, the, the colors mean something. So, so um, is black I, hardest? Basically. Yeah. I'm trying so, to figure so, out, I'm trying to, trying to guess the color system as you're talking. I mean, too. I'm like, can I be sparkly pink for super hard? <laughs> is, is that how this is going to work? But Jacob, yes. I love this idea. Yeah. This, is, this has my brain like lighting up with colors. So green is like rejuvenating or rest or whatever. Like, so it's all about recovery. And then um, I've got it like aqua is like a recovery run. And then like blue is like fully oxygenated blood, you know, but it's still like probably no, not over five out of 10. And then I've got the red line is probably like, the threshold would be red and then somewhere in between there would be purple. So that might be marathon pace or effort um, because it's a blend of the blue and the red. And then yellow is um, where you start getting jaundicey um, because you're, <laughs> yeah, anyway. So um, I don't understand all of the science behind it, but I, I felt like it was, it was good to, to try and give some sort of visual to it so people can understand um, that skill uh, for the same reasons, because um, yeah, a lot of people do come from the track or the, or the road and, and are obsessed with, with pace or, or heart rate, um, or they don't understand any of it. And so I, I felt like this was a good way of kind of teaching, uh, kind of bringing both, both the trail and ultra and the, and the road and track worlds together. Um, and, and to be fair, like I, I got my start coaching track and cross country and, and I, I love the shorter distances too. I'm not very good at them. Like I'm but I, I still love them. I love coaching those distances and I love, I, I think there's definitely a place for them, but I, I, I find a lot of people struggle with that transition, whether they're good in high school or college or, or whether they're just, they're just working their way up that, to just make that paradigm shift. Um, so, so one of probably one of the most profound experiences for me, uh, when I was chasing times on the road and trying to qualify for the Olympic trials and stuff like that, the marathon. Um, but I was still trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> what my place was in this running world and stuff. And, uh, there were, I think about 20 or 30 of us at the Eugene marathon, um, trying to hit the qualifier and pretty much everyone in the field was faster than me at the 5k at the 10k, probably at the half marathon or marathon even, but a lot of us were, were trying to run the marathon for the first time. And I didn't have a fast marathon PR relative to what other people did. And as surprising as it might seem, even Eugene is kind of hilly near the university and like almost every road course has some hills. And, but when people obsess and honestly think that their watch, like without taking into account all of the other factors of like, especially years ago, like, are we picking up the satellites? Is my, is my wrist heart rate working? Like all of the different technological glitches that can happen um, where you just, I, I think trail running teaches you to not lose your shit. Like when you're, because you're so used to like, figuring out how to troubleshoot that and stuff like that. Whereas in congested communities uh, or big city marathons, like a lot of times you can't pick up satellite because there's, there's all these um, high rises and stuff like that. Running. So anyway, running the Eugene marathon, there's like 30 of us and it's like not even 10 K in, it's probably like the first five K, but you know, the, the paces are all over the place, like possibly like within 10 seconds of each other per mile. And that's, that's a big range. If, if you're like trying to hit like the, the, the minimum, <laughs> time standard. especially at that speed yeah right? it's a huge percent difference yeah but i mean but it's like okay we were running we were literally running uphill for the last mile and we're now running downhill so 
Like, but, but I mean, I've never heard so many expletives in my life. Like people were losing it. And it was like, guys, we're 5k in, like, just chill, like, just shake your legs out and just like roll with it. And, um, it was really bizarre to be finishing the run and like going by the, the water bottle stations and seeing that I, I wasn't fast enough to even be able to have my water bottles out there, but seeing that there were a lot of empty water bottle or water bottles there ready to be picked up. And pretty much everyone had dropped out within like the first 10 K because they were freaking out about like this variation in paces. So I placed, I think I placed like third that day and was like, I was not the third fastest guy on the field in the field today, like not by a long shot. And it was just like, I just rolled with it and was able to like, I ran a huge PR, but it was still not fast enough to have beaten most of those people. They just lost it mentally and just dropped out and thought, Hey, I'm going to do it again. And then I saw many of them again at the marathon championships. And it was the same exact story. It was like, they, they were off by five seconds and they're just like, I can't do this and, and dropped out. And so like, I, I really, I feel like I benefited a lot by doing some trail and ultra running because I just realized that you can't always rely on your watch and you, you just got to hold it together and rely on like, trust your training and trust like, how you're feeling. And, and I felt good. Like I, I literally felt like we were just cruising and it was just feeling it out. Whereas everyone else was like really tense. And, and, uh, so it, from that experience, I just learned, you know, pace is important, but, but even something like Boston, like there is no way to run even splits at Boston. Like Des does it pretty, pretty well every year, but other than her, um, and even her, like very few people can run like even splits across the board. At some, right. If like you Boston. run an even split at Boston, it's because you're working harder in the second half than the first half. <laughs> a lot harder. And you've totally like ridden the brakes. And for me, that would destroy my quads. If I like tried to ride the brakes the whole first half so that I had legs in the second half, I would, I wouldn't have legs. It would like, it would do the opposite for me. So it, it really varies. Um, I, I don't claim to be an expert, but for me, like from my, my personal experience, um, I think it's really important to, to be flexible with pace ranges in, in training and also, um, in racing, like, but that's, that's me. Jacob, that's one of the favorites or one of my favorite stories I've heard in running. And it was actually honestly exactly where I was about to go with data. So in my experience as a coach, data are inaccurate a large percent of the time. And the more that we become reliant on that, the more we become reliant on inaccuracies. And actually my favorite technological glitch as a runner is when a GPS watch tells athletes they're running 20 seconds faster than they are because athletes start to internalize that. And that starts to become the pace that they're going to run. Actually, back in the day, if you used to run with the Strava app on your phone, it would spit out um, times that were 15% or 15, probably like 15 seconds per mile faster than watches. And oh. athletes were starting to believe that and starting to take on. It was just a Strava growth hack. They were just trying right? to get, trying to, trying to build market share. What an amazing, and they were trying to build market share of coaching because athletes were like, I believe this is working. And it was like one of the best technological glitches I've seen. But also the same goes in the other direction where I've had athletes that use the wrist sensor. The wrist sensor for heart rate is notoriously bad. It's getting a little bit better and it really depends on the technology and an athlete's wrist structure and all of that. But the number of times an athlete's like, my, my heart rate was at 185. It was such a bad workout. And it's a wrist sensor and the data, the data are all over the place. Um, so I feel like that's where effort is really just beneficial, except for the technological glitches that tell people they're running faster because that's it's truly a gift. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because when we talk about this, oftentimes we can default into, all right, like we want to make sure that we're, again, not not freaking out, that we're, we're staying calm and relaxed. And that that's an obvious, there's an obvious reason for us to default to that conversation and to that topic. And I think that's a very valuable one. At the same time, 
Megan, you and David, and he's not here, so you know we'll just talk, we'll talk about like your your own opinions here. Um, but just knowing you both, I know that you guys are equally as excited to jam about how these things can be restrictive in a lot of the ways that you just mentioned. That if we're focusing on these times, maybe in the short term they will have a you know a tangible benefit, and on race day maybe they can have a tangible benefit. But if it's something that we become reliant on, not only maybe aren't we gaining the mental resilience that Jacob. Um, offered up. But in addition, we may be limiting our own abilities because we, we're we not really the best predictors of how far we've improved or what we could possibly do in some of these situations. I love that point. I also think a big part about data too is the fact that when you're looking at data points, oftentimes athletes, and this is how I am as an athlete, like it's, it's a great thing to be an athlete and coach because I can totally understand the athlete psyche. But I look at every single data point as an athlete as this big deal. But in reality, one data point, there's so much day-to-day variability in athletes' training schedules that one data point does not matter unless it's really good. And that's what I say is athletes, you are your best data points. So like if you go out and run a smashing 10K, that's an incredible predictor. But if you go out and run a less, you know, a subpar 10K, that doesn't tell me actually that much as a coach. It's really about seeing the forest through the trees. And I think that's what a coach is there for. But that's what makes it sometimes hard about data is because it feels so salient. Like when you have that watch telling you this, it's like, this is what I am today. When, you know, as a coach, it's like, well, you were that last week. Like last week, you were so much better. And that's, you still are that person. There's just a lot of day-to-day variability based on life stress and where you are in the training cycle and all kinds of factors. I mean, it's essentially like, physiological, I don't know, crap stew that goes on beneath our, that we can't even measure. Um, And that's why there's just so much day-to-day variability. And sometimes looking at the data can get athletes clogged up in that mindset. I love that. So instead of like a fair and balanced approach to looking at our our metrics and be like, no, we are hopelessly optimistic or throwing things in the garbage can. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like, I feel like when athletes look at their metrics, you are your best metric. Like you are your best day. Like that, that to me is an indicator of who you are as an athlete. And there's going to be any number of bad days, tough days, hard workouts. And those don't give me an indicator of an athlete's potential that just shows, Hey, it was a hard day. It was a tough workout. And that's why I love, you know, these best days. That's like, what's really about, that's what the data is all about. That's what's grasping onto it. But it takes a, I feel like for athletes, it's really hard to get that understanding because every point feels so salient. And that's where I think a coach really comes in. It's like, no, you are that 10K. Like that's a fantastic performance. And that's what I see in you as an athlete. All right. Two more things before we get going. And both of you guys, um, you know, we're already 45 minutes in. This is flying, but you are super busy. So we want to touch on two more points. The last one we're going to hit on, um, I'm just teasing it now so people can stay stay with us, baby, is the you know, doing fun and fun challenges, right? And that's kind of like a hallmark of uh, trail and ultra running, which is really exciting. Maybe something that's a little bit far afield for a lot of road runners. With that said, before we get into it, is the idea of the importance of aerobic development. Jacob, you mentioned this before when you got into your first uh, marathon. You basically did a couple of, couple of 10Ks, maybe a half, and then, hey, marathon, here I come. And oftentimes, um, for a lot of runners, they take a similar approach. I've run a, a half marathon, now it's marathon time, and they don't necessarily understand that you know, and this is my own personal opinion, I'd love to hear your own, is that the, the half marathon is much closer to the 5K than it is to the marathon, 
and that it, there, there are certain things we want to build up over time um, as we get ready for, for some of these longer endurance races. So just the, the, the importance of aerobic development for you in your training and how, you know, the, um, I guess let's leave it right there. Let's, that's that's, that's, that's going to be the end of the question. The, the importance of aerobic development and how you try to um, get people along those lines and, and improve over time. Yeah. So I, I definitely try to take a, a long-term approach to it. I don't think people need to be in a rush. Um, some people want to skip 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons and marathons and just go straight to ultras. And I, and I understand that. I, I, I definitely understand the appeal, but I, I do think it's important to um, give your body a chance to adapt. Uh, our bodies are incredibly resilient, but they do they do require, uh, you know, they, they have to follow that stress and rest um, cycle. And so uh, I... I want to be doing this the rest of my life. And so I, I would hope that, you know, my athletes have that same, um, approach. I, I find that those are the ones that, that I connect with and, and continue to work with the best. Um, that it's not just a, you know, one-time bucket list thing and then one and done and they don't want to be runners anymore. Um, but I, I definitely think, you know, keeping in mind injury prevention and just, just trying to build that durability over time, um, is, is really important. Um, and I, I do think having that variety in surfaces helps with that, just uh, with the injury prevention and also even mental <laughs> uh, breaks, I think. Um, and, and, and I think it teaches you to not to realize that pace is relative and it's, it's just one of the many metrics. Um, from, from what I understand of uh, human physiology, like we have much greater capacity to improve aerobically than anaerobically most of our anaerobic capacity is fixed. Um, you can do some to improve our, your VO2 max or whatever, but most of that's genetically just, you are, you're fast twitch, you're slow twitch, your combo, whatever. Um, you can do some things, especially if you're like totally raw and haven't done anything, but, but for the most part, there's much greater room to improve aerobically than anaerobically. And so it's not, I, I certainly believe for neuromuscular reasons that it's still important to incorporate some anaerobic work and some strength work. But, um, I definitely think that we, that most athletes try and, especially when they're coming from shorter distances to the marathon or to ultras, they, they overemphasize the speed and the strength. And by strength, I don't mean that, that word is used interchangeably sometimes as like threshold type stuff or stamina. I don't mean that. I mean, like, like physical, like muscular strength. Um, I, I think that's often overemphasized. Um, and, and then the aerobic development, even just easy runs or easy cross training is underdeveloped and, or even, even the long runs are often under, <laughs> underemphasized. And, um, so I don't think you have to be all one or all the other. I think, I certainly think you should have a combination of the two, but, but I think, um, it, it goes back to kind of the Matt Fitzgerald or the, um, uh, sailor stuff like the 80, 20, like the, the, the majority of your work should be aerobic in nature and, and 20% or less should, should be like over that threshold. So. I love that. Can I just comment real quick? Actually, I am over here again, taking notes, Jacob. I, I feel like I, I need to like have this whole file of, of Jacob using notes. Um, I think for me also, I think about aerobic development in terms of 
in terms of cellular stress, the body just knows aerobic stress. Like, I don't think it matters where it comes from, whether that comes from running or skiing or um, trail running or road running or whatever it may be. And then I also like to think about it in terms of velocity at aerobic threshold. And so that's what once athletes start getting closer and closer to races, that's when I like to start layering in that speed element, the strength element, because if you could become biomechanically efficient at that same aerobic threshold, it makes a big difference. And so in my mind, I kind of break it down by that concept of like building the aerobic system that happens on a scale of years and then building the velocity and improving the velocity at aerobic threshold that can actually happen in a matter of weeks because it's really about just turning on that neuromuscular stimulus, really priming the body biomechanically. And so I loved when you said the idea that like we can keep building our aerobic systems for years because I really like that's my bucket in terms of like overall aerobic development. And then as an athlete gets closer and closer to racing, focusing on that velocity at aerobic threshold um, standpoint. Can I, can I jump back to a previous comment or a previous topic? Just, it was something that was in my mind and I forgot to mention that it keeps coming back to me. Um, but it was about the doubles or the back-to-back idea, um, that ultra runners often do. And I, um, I like Megan, I don't usually recommend back-to-backs for my, um, for my marathoners, unless, unless it just, that's their strength. You know, if that makes sense, like if, if, if there's someone that's just going to benefit by more volumes very rarely, but sometimes I will kind of just like almost overemphasize the, that piece. But, but, um, one of the people that we mentioned before, um, Pete Fitzinger in his, in what, in that advanced marathoning, he actually recommends, or he, he says that it's possible because of DOMS and stuff like that, that, that you can do like a speed workout followed by a long run. Um, and, and a lot of collegiate programs, they'll, they'll have their race on, on Saturday and then they'll do their long run on Sunday and even high school programs do that and stuff like that. So, uh, I found there were times for me professionally when I wasn't just coaching, um, when that was the only way that I could fit it in was like, if I had Saturday and Sunday to get my key workouts in for the week, I was able to, to just book, like to put both of those back to back to stack them and then have a recovery day on, on say Monday or something like that. So so that, that's more of a marathon specific thing, but I, so I do think there is merit to doing back-to-back type work. It just doesn't necessarily have to be back-to-back long days in the mountains because that's not specific to, to marathoning. But I, I mean, I, I do mile repeats or something like that, or I'd be on the track on a Saturday and then go on a two to three hour long run on a Sunday and, and felt good. Like it wasn't like maybe started with heavy legs, but it, like I, that it was, it was with that training system that I, that I ran that race in Eugene, like, and, and I didn't even mean to, my goal was to break two thirty, and I accidentally ran two twenty five, and it was like, I was just trying to pace my friends so we could both run two thirty. you know, like we were training together the whole way. So like, it, it was a huge breakthrough for me, um, more than a five or six minute PR. So, and it was with that, that training system. So anyway, just wanted to bring that up as a, as an option of back-to-back or stacking on weekends for, I would assume many of the listeners are busy and don't necessarily can't get to the track at 4 a.m. It might be locked, you know, before work. So that might be an option. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Especially in terms of circling back, I do want to say, Megan, you brought up that Strava point of like, you know, when when they they mistimed it, people like just acted as if, and Lord knows they were able to do that uh, just because there was some sort of mental barrier. Uh, I don't know if it's the preface or the introduction to Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, he chronicles his experience with this exact same topic where he was running, I think it was like the indoor mile and he was stuck at like a certain time. Like he was, he was extraordinarily fast, very well trained, really knew his body. You think he, there's no way he would be able to misjudge this at all, right? Like he didn't need the Jacob Pusey color system. He had it dialed. And yet 
He was running this race in the timer, completely messed up, gave him the wrong split. And all of a sudden he's like, wow, I'm running three seconds faster than I thought I was at this pace. And I'm feeling great. And he wasn't. He was running the exact same pace as he was before. But because he thought he felt great at that pace, he just stepped on the gas and had like a 10 second PR in like the 1500, which is like insane for a highly trained athlete. I mean, that's a remarkable achievement. Um, that, that, that in and of itself should have been a book. How, how, was, how was someone highly trained said 10 second PR in 1500 um, but I was thinking the exact same thing when Megan was saying that I was like yeah if you read that part in Alex Hutchinson's book so yeah it, <laughs> it's definitely a memorable um, memorable story for sure that he shared actually yeah everyone should read Alex Hutchinson's book I read it when I was running and I feel like there's something about like I was listening to the audiobook while I was running and there's something about listening to that audiobook as you're running that makes the runs I feel like it even has a performance enhancing benefit because you're like I'm tougher than I am I know my brain is limiting this so I feel like for people out there who haven't read it, listening to an audiobook while exercising has has some performance enhancing benefits as well. Right. Matt, Matt Fitzgerald's How Bad Do You Want It? If you could just listen to both of those books back to back and do an ultra, you'd like, you finished in seven hours. You'd be done. You'd be fine. You know, those things will really get you going. Um, all right. Last one before we get going. First of all, before I get into it, thank you so much for the time and effort you've provided um, all of us in with this these topics and this episode. Um you know, Megan's taking notes. I'm going to be re-listening to this, uh, tell myself as a runner and as a coach. Um, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Before we get going, Megan, we'll start with you. How can road runners embrace fun and challenging endeavors the way that we often see trail and ultra runners do? That's a great question. So I think for me, there's a lot of freedom and fun and just like I'm out on trails and I feel that sense of like, woohoo, let me put out like my airplane arms. This is just like really fun. I'm covering cool ground. But that being said, I've had that sort of like transcendental sort of run experiences on random runs. Like I'll be, I, I remember going to a medical conference once um, in Houston and I was out at 4 a.m. before the city woke up and was just out there being like, wow, this is amazing. But it was like in the middle of the city on these like gnarly roads. And so I think it's really about just for me, and this is what I encourage runners to is there's a lot of like really cool things to be seen on the roads. And it takes a little bit of a creative eye to see those things. But I think if you can embrace that idea of like road running and training and running, just being this big adventure, and it doesn't have to be like, I have, I'm fortunate to have access to mountains out here, but it doesn't have to be these big, awesome mountains. Like you can get that sense of adventure in a city. You can get that sense of adventure at 4am in the dark. I've done this before, like running around the same loop over and over and over again, because that was the only safe place to run. And so I think it's just, I think that adventure mindset and the more that you can turn off your GPS watch in the process, because it is so hard to focus on adventure when you have something binging at you and telling you you're not fit or like your VO2 max is dropping. So I think for me, those two are high highly correlated and there's just a lot of adventure to be had on the roads. I would say that, that Megan and David are the fun coaches. And so honestly, like when people reach out to me and they're like, I'm just looking for someone who's like really animated and like really fun. I'm like, I'm not the right guy, but you should probably um, talk to Megan and, and David because they're, they're fun. Like you can feel their enthusiasm um, through everything that they do. Uh, I'm, I'm boring. I'm monotonous. Like I, I grew up in, in rural America, like my trails were dirt canal roads and, and a lot of the same loops around the same blocks every single day. And I love it. Like I, I, I've spent the last five or six years living in Banff, like near Banff, Alberta. So like one of the most beautiful places on earth, people travel from all over the world to come see it. And, um, it is spectacular. And I, I, I enjoy running 
loops around the ball fields when I go home to visit my family, just as much as I do running through these like majestic mountains with, with glacial lakes. Um, because somehow like running to me was, it, it, it never, at least for the first 20 years of my life, it wasn't even like a sensory experience in terms of like visual stimuli. It was, it was just so much internal, um, experience, so much of an internal experience that like, I, um, I, I'm not diminishing things being fun, but I kind of like what Megan was saying, like, it, I, I, I think you can experience like these, these truly transcendental experiences, like in the dark on a morning, you know, 5k loop through your neighborhood or, um, or on the treadmill or whatever. Like it doesn't have to, I, I think it's similar to fitness. I don't think you can force fun and I don't think you can force fitness. I think, I think if you just let it come to you, it will happen. And, and, and you'll feel it more often than not. If you, if you, if you just get out the door, like if you just lace up your shoes and get out the door, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy the run or you'll enjoy the experience. Whereas if you, if you go in with these expectations of, you know, (laughs) I have to have this, you know, mind boggling experience, whether it's pace or whether it's, you know, the spiritual high or something like that, I think you're setting yourself up to be disappointed. But if you just go out there and let the run come to you, um, you'll be filled most, most days. I love these answers. It reminds me of, um, I forget what book I was reading at the time. I shouldn't say reading. I struggle with this all the time. I haven't read a book in 30 years. I listen to, I listen to books, so I don't know the proper adjective or proper, proper verb, I should say, in terms of what I'm, how I'm actually consuming books. I don't want to say consuming either because then it sounds like I'm eating them. Um, but it was some book that I was listening to, and it was like a new initiative had come to a like a – uh, a, not a seminary, but the monks were there and the, they were living there full time. And this monk, you know, would always walk from his cottage to the main prayer area through this trail. And the new initiate was walking with him and said, wow, you've been here for 30 years. You must know this trail like the back of your hand at this point. And the experienced monk was like, no, I'm just starting to learn it. You know, the point obviously being this is a mindset and really, you know, um, and, and all things come with it. I don't need to unpack it. It's pretty self-explanatory as is my gratitude for you guys. Thank you so much for coming on this episode. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, Matt. I just, I want to keep sitting here talking to you. I have a number of Zoom calls left. I'm like, but this is my favorite one. Can't we just sit here and keep this going the rest of the day? So selfishly, this was a blast, the highlight of my day and just really appreciated learning from you both.